Institute exists to help in the great and continuing work of building a more equal, open, tolerant and independent Australia. I do not for a moment believe that we should set limits on what we can achieve together for our country, for our people, for our future. Welcome to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Hi, I'm Leanne Smith, Director of the Whitlam Institute. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Institute's podcast, featuring our event, Women, Peace and Security, in conversation with NATO's Special Representative. This episode was recorded at the Museum of Australian Democracy in Old Parliament House on the 13th of February, 2019. Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for coming. Is that better? I just have to swallow it. Okay. Um, Thank you so much for coming to join us at the first Whitlam Institute event in a very long time, I think, in Canberra. And to have a Whitlam Institute event at Old Parliament House is, of course, very nice for those of us who who remember the Whitlam legacy. Um, My name's Leanne Smith, and I'm the director of the Whitlam Institute. I'm also the UN Association of Australia um, ambassador for SDG 16. For those of you who don't know the SDGs, that's the that's the Sustainable Development Goal for um, Peace, Justice, and Strong Institutions. I want to begin um, tonight by acknowledging that we're meeting on the land of the Ngunnawal people and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and future, and welcome any First Nations people who are with us tonight. We are very glad to be here, and very honoured to be. Um, So tonight we're here to do a couple of things. Um, Firstly, I hope you'll all join me in a very lively discussion around this topic. We want to talk tonight about why women's safety and why women's empowerment are important matters. And we want to look at the women, peace and security agenda as it applies and as it works or doesn't work internationally, but also how, how it applies and how it works here in Australia. And we want to look for points of solidarity between women, women's movements here in Australia working on very serious domestic issues and women who are working around the world, women and men who are working around the world on, on very important issues related to women, peace and security. So let me introduce you to our amazing panel of women tonight. Claire Hutchinson is the NATO Secretary General's Special Representative for Women, Peace and Security. She's the high-level focal point on all aspects of NATO's contribution to the Women, Peace and Security agenda, which aims to facilitate coordination and consistency in NATO's policies and activities and to take forward the implementation of the pretty new, I think, NATO EAPC Policy and Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security. Claire and I know each other from uh, UN peacekeeping days, where she was really the, the life force behind the gender movement inside UN peacekeeping during my time there. Um, our second panellist today is Apajok Biar. She is the Youth Ambassador for Multicultural Youth, the Multicultural Youth Affairs Network. She's a Youth Advisor for Multicultural New South Wales and Youth Participation Officer at the Cumberland Council. Apajok has represented Australia and New Zealand together as a Refugee Youth Advocate at the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. She's also, and this is particularly relevant tonight for tonight, she's also been part of the Gender Audit Team to UNHCR. Um, Apajok was born in a refugee camp in Kenya and she arrived in Australia with her family when she was two years old and she's become a really influential advocate for refugee youth, particularly for Southern Sudanese refugee youth in Australia. Anu is a passionate advocate for gender equality and women's empowerment. She has extensive practice of experience in the field of gender and development, women's leadership and empowerment and her research areas of expertise include women, peace and security, women's representation, participation and leadership in politics, feminist approaches to international relations, 
Gender, Women and International Aid. She's a member of the steering group of the Australian Civil Society Coalition for Women, Peace and Security, where she's conducted extensive national consultations on the National Action Plan for Women, Peace and Security. She's also currently Head of Gender Equality at Care Australia. So for those of you who don't know much about Gough Whitlam, um, I think it's safe to say that he was a very strong champion and advocate for women's rights in Australia, introducing a lot of legislation and policies to support women's empowerment and women's freedom in Australia. He was also very much focused on Australia's um, obligation to meet its international obligations and international commitments under international law. So at the Whitlam Institute today, we are trying to follow through on some of those commitments and we are doing it through uh, some commissioning research, advocating policy positions and engaging with community around some of these issues. We have two main themes that we're working on in terms of policy research at the moment. One of those is the future of Australian democracy and in that space we're doing some work on um, young Australians and democracy, on um, the arts and democracy and why a thriving arts community is important for a healthy democracy and also around um, the use of plebiscites as a tool for democratic engagement. Under the Australia in the World program, we're looking at Australia's relationships with the Pacific and, and perceptions of Australia in the Pacific region. We're also looking at how we engage multilaterally and um, in addition to that, looking at the sustainable development goals and how they might be a tool for Australia to help create some more cohesion around our domestic policy and how we engage globally. We do a lot of work in the civic space and um, we run a, a competition for young Australians called What Matters at, that we run in the ACT as well as in New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania and Western Australia at the moment, which we hope will run nationally very soon. Um, and we run civics education programs for kids that's aligned to national and state curriculum. So that's a bit of background about us. We are so thrilled to have this event tonight, which obviously represents a lot of my personal uh, professional history, but also the work we're trying to do under connecting Australia to what's going on around the world on this really important topic of women, peace and security. So tonight what we're going to do is um, have um, two rounds of questions that I'll ask our panellists to kind of frame the discussion and then we'll open, it, open the floor up for what I hope will be a really lively discussion with comments and questions from all of you about, about what this topic's about. Um, we will be recording the event tonight for a podcast, so just please keep that in mind in case you're in you know, any official capacities that you don't want to be recorded for. Um, but we hope to have a pretty free-flowing conversation. So Claire, maybe you can kick off the discussion tonight by um, telling us a bit about your role with NATO, how that role's come about, and what the focus of your current work is. Um, can I add on a, an extra question to that? I would love to hear your perspective on what the current peace negotiations in Afghanistan mean from a women, peace and security perspective. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you, Leanne. It is uh, uh, working with Leanne, and Leanne and I worked many years together, and it's actually truly one of the happiest times in, 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 our, in my working career, uh, where we, I, we tackled many, many appeal battles, and uh, so it's an absolute joy to be here. Um, and hello again to those I saw this morning. <laughs> You'll probably see me saying the same things, um, but that's okay. So I'm really happy to be here. This is my first time in Australia. Uh, but I hope it's not my last, um, depending what I say. Um, <laughs> um, um, so anyway, the, my role is that I'm the NATO's uh, Secretary General's Special Representative on Women, Peace and Security. So we, we, we say SGSR. Um, and I've been in this role since January of last year, 
where I came straight from peacekeeping, where I worked in peacekeeping for 16 years prior to that, uh, both in the field as well as in headquarters. So my role now is to be, to be the advisor to the Secretary General, basically, on women, peace and security. Um, we have gender advisors. Our gender advisors are separate to us because my work is more advocacy and advisory to the Secretary General. So we do very much policy. So I'm the policy and the advocacy within headquarters. But NATO has is a structure, has a headquarters, which is in Brussels, and then we have two bi-strategic commands. One is in Norfolk, uh, Virginia, in the US, and one is also in Belgium, but it's in Mons. And this is where the, the, the implementation comes, the operationalization to those. One is the Allied Command Transformation, uh, which is mainly training and capacity building, and the other is Allied Command Operations, which is the operations and, and the mission. So I work at the top of, of that triangle. And my office is next to the Secretary General's. Uh, we have a small team of 13 people. Most of them are seconded. Uh, but this year, or last year, the end of last year, for the very first time, we got two posts in the budget. And I mention that because in terms of women, peace and security, this is critical. Uh, in any place I've worked, the resourcing of women, peace and security is the major problem. And if you don't have the post in the budget, you don't speak with authenticity and credibility. And now we have credibility, so yay to us. Um, so this is the, the, the work we do. Now across the board, we have eight divisions internally, uh, from public diplomacy to emerging security challenges. And that, that division looks at cyber security, uh, energy security, it looks at uh, terrorism, the counter-terrorism action plan. It, it, we also have the Science for Peace project, and I don't know if many of you have heard that, but they give money to projects. So, um, and they look at how do research and scientific research, and how does that work within the confines of NATO's, uh, NATO's investigation of how we apply uh, security and defense. We have operations, and we also have defense investment, defense planning. My role is to go across all of them and convince them all that women, peace, and security means something very important to them. And in some cases, it's easy, and in some cases, it just ain't. And, and that's where getting the rhetoric right is really important, because we can't just say you have to do it. They have to understand why. And when you're talking about defense investment, the link to them is just not there. And so we have to work really hard ramping up our rhetoric where I came out of peacekeeping and it was easy. It was about peace, it was about peacekeeping, it was about getting the resolutions and they applied and it was, it was a no-brainer, as difficult as it was to do, but it still was a no-brainer. In NATO, you're talking about defense investment, you talk about women, peace and security principles, and that's not so easy. So we have to really reapply and retool the work that we do to try to make it link. So across that, uh, we have a task force, but what we're doing this year is reinventing the work we do to make it more accountability-driven. So we're working on a monitoring and evaluation framework. The new policy, uh, so we had a policy, the first policy was in 2007, it was adopted. The new policy has brought in for the first time principles, and our principles are three I's, of inclusion, integration, uh, inclusiveness, integration, and integrity. And across that, with the integration means that every division has to include gender in every single policy, doctrine, and program they do. And we will be monitoring and watching that this year. 
The inclusiveness is raising numbers of women. So right now NATO has 12% of women that would be deployable to missions. Um, but it means Which is better than UN. Much the better than UN, who have um, still 7% on the police and still 3 to 4% on the military. Um, we have, and this is an interesting contrast because we have a, a smaller base of 29 nations, uh, but interestingly, they don't want to be deployed to peacekeeping. So when we talk about the women and why we can't move them over, there's a big gap between the two. Um, and so um, on, the on the inclusion, on the inclusion of getting more women, the biggest challenge is every, every at the leadership level we have uh, a secretary general, deputy secretary general, and eight. Um, assistant secretary generals, which is different. We have USGs, we have ASGs, and everyone's a man. So at the highest level in NATO, we have a deputy secretary general who's a woman, and then we have myself and another colleague who's assistant secretary general of public diplomacy, and that's the highest level for women. And so out of that, that's maybe, what, 10%, if that. Um, and that's where we have to work. We have to get the women at the ASG level. So this is something we're going to be struggling with. I now have um, been given by the nations, so the nations run us, and the nations have asked me now to lead a, a diversity policy, a part of which will include a gender strategy. And then integration is the last piece, and that is the most important piece for me. For the first time this year, we will have a sexual exploitation abuse policy. In the 70 years of NATO, we've never had a policy yet, so we are going to have um, first policy this year. We've always had codes of conduct in the military uh, and doctrine, but we're putting together now for an inclusive, uh, comprehensive sexual exploitation abuse policy. Mm -hmm. So this is really great. I'm really looking forward to this. And this is part of the integration, uh, the in, um, integrity work that we're doing. And so integrity is basically sexual exploitation abuse, how do we hold ourselves, and standards. So when we deploy to operations, the communities trust us, and they will give us and understand we're there to do good which is ultimately what we are, although there are some misunderstandings about NATO. We are a political and military um, alliance. Um, so this is across the board what we do, um, and the challenge is there. The challenge is definitely there, but it's a challenge that we're willing to take on, and really, by the end of this year, I hope to be able to report back on progress through our monitoring reporting, and, and I'm optimistic. I think we'll... Uh, We'll get there. I may be jet lagged as I say that, <laughs> but I really believe that we will we will make a change because there's a political will, which is the most important. The secretary general is really committed to this. The deputy secretary general is really committed to this, and 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 the ASGs who are men, but they still are committed to this. And so I think with this, uh, with a with a bit of um, with a bit of energy and a bit of vision and a new policy and action plan, we're really going to make some some good steps. And Claire, Afghanistan, Taliban negotiating with the U.S., no Afghan government, where does... Where so, you know, and this worries me, and this came up today about what is happening with, with, with the discussion with, with Taliban. And one of the, the challenges is, is, do the rights of women get put by the wayside when these discussions take place? And I believe they will. And they will because it's not relevant. It's not relevant in the space we're talking about it. Are we going to be able to have women sitting at the peace table with Taliban? Probably not. I, I doubt it. So in that case, what do we do? And this is where I think we have to take different avenues and routes to finding 
the negotiation so that we don't, every gain that we've made over the last years will go. But this also reminds me of something in Kosovo in, in 2006, when we had the same, uh, the dialogue around the standards for Kosovo and the, and the peace agreement. And there was a, the women were very happy because they weren't at the table, and it was the unity group, so it was three men from each of the, from the, the, the negotiation sides. And the women weren't at the table. And they complained they weren't at the table, but there was no way they were going to get there. And so at the time, Kai Aidi, who was the, the chief negotiator, uh, offered to, to take their voices and be the person who puts it into that negotiation. But the women refused to let him do that because they said they have to be at the table. Now, I'm, I'm pragmatic. I believe we have to find other ways to, to get that conversation to where it wants to be. And if you can't be at the table, to me, it's senseless trying to knock down a door that's never going to open. Manipulate the situation so that you do find some, some avenue to have that dialogue. We've got to get women's rights at the table, and we've got to find a way to do that. And my fear is we're not going to get there in time. And this is what seems to be happening. And we've seen it time and time again, right? And, and, and we have a really short time here. Um, these closed-door negotiations, what will happen to women's rights, and ultimately what is going to happen to reverse all of, n not incredible progress, but at least on the road. And we are now, uh, on International Women's Day, bringing Afghan women to talk to our council. Mm. And they've talked to the council about what happens if. And that's the conversation we're going to have to have at that political level. This is a very personal thing for me. My human rights assistant when I was in Afghanistan in 2005 to 2007 was a very young woman. Um, she got a scholarship to go to the US to study. Her brother, at the 11th, that 24 hours before she was supposed to fly, her brother said, no, I don't think you should go, in kind of a guardianship fashion, and she missed out on that scholarship. She found another way to get that scholarship. She went to the United States to study, and now she's the Deputy Foreign Minister of Afghanistan. What the hell is going to happen to Adal Arads in, in the context of these negotiations? It's terrifying for me. Yeah. Um, let me come to you, Afajok, for the next question. Um, I wondered um, if you could talk to us about your role in the gender audit team for UNHCR. Um, I know you did a lot of work in Geneva, and I was wondering what you learned about um, your engagement with the international community and the what happens when the international community engages in countries where there's conflict, and are they thinking through the gender issues from your perspective? What did you learn through that process? Um, yeah, so what I learned through that process was um, being in Geneva at these high-level discussions, um, the thematic meetings for the High Commissioner, was that the panel was less than 2% were females. And even if there were females, they weren't bringing up gender-based issues. Um, why, we weren't too sure. Um, so when we were appointed by UNHCR to, to come and address that, um, we saw a big shift. Um, across the meetings that we had attended. And towards the end of it, it got to a point where we had um, states who do have conflict in their countries come up to us and say, hey, we want to learn how to do gender equality better. We want to know how to be more gender aware, but where do we even start? Where's the starting point? And um, where's the support to be able to do that? So opening that kind of discussion was, was fantastic. And um, it was huge for us to even see that shift. 
because at the beginning, when we first met them, they weren't saying anything to do with gender. Um, but towards the end, um, they were asking us for more advice on how to do that. Um, and then coming out of that, we had um, the Canadian Mission host a roundtable um, to invite states and as well as um, organizations to come have a chat about gender equality and what does that look like and um, from policy to practice and so forth. And in that discussion, they invited us um, as women and girls who have had the experience but also have consulted um, quite thoroughly back home. Mm -hmm. And that discussion was fantastic because the Canadian mission was like, this is how we started. And having that dialogue um, opened up was great. And I, it continued, um, which was great to see. I wanted to ask you what, what happens next like from UNHCR's perspective or whether other parts of the system picked up the idea of having this kind of engagement. Do you know, do you have a sense of whether it will keep going? Um, from there on, the thing is with UNHCR at that point was funding. Um, yeah. They were like, this is great, uh, but it only lasted four to five months. Um, we don't quite have the funding to continue it. Yeah. Um, but all the recommendations were um, sought through and they did come, the actions were made um, and that was great to see. And it did create this ripple effect where um, other states are looking to um, Australia and Canada and um, the major states who were making these recommendations um, for support. And they've created a, um, like a, a mini working group, um, a gender-based working group where, hey, okay, we're all gonna go to this meeting. Um, this is what we're gonna be discussing. Um, how can we be pushing the, the, the gender forward on gender equality? And um, how can we be working together to make sure that stays at the table and all the work that happened does not repeat, but just continues? Great, okay, thank you. Anu, I wanted to come to you next. Um, the first question I have for you um, was whether you could give us a sense about your work on gender with care and care's approach to making sure they take a gender lens to all of the programming they do. Um, so I head up CARE uh, Australia. So CARE is a uh, confederation of 14 member um, organisations and CARE Australia is one of them. I head up CARE Australia's um, gender unit and um, my everyday job, luckily, is not having to convince anyone that we have to look at gender and why gender is important in programming. My challenge is getting to that more sophisticated understanding of how we move from gender sensitive and responsive programs to really programs that transform gender relations in the communities in which um, we work. And CARE is one of the few um, organized international NGOs that um, very early on has put gender at the front and center of everything that we do. So none, you won't find a single program, either humanitarian or development, that CARE does, where gender is not a core consideration. And um, we did a, uh, CARE did a big study in um, 2006 where it looked back at its history of how it um, tries to bring about change in gender relations. And we found that what works best is sort of working across three dimensions of, um, of programming. One is it's very much at the level of individual capacity development, which is what everyone does. Um, you know, getting recognition on rights and how to claim rights, getting that understanding. There's less work that's done around changing relations. So this is at the household level where we are looking at how can we change the social norms that underpin power and uh, imbalances in power and how decisions are made at that household level and at that community level. 
And finally, at that structural level, so transforming structures, that is those broad social norms that underpin everything that we do, whether it's our organizational policies or whether it is our public policies, and trying to bring about change both at that formal and informal level. So you'll find that almost all our projects try their best to work across these three dimensions. Most of CARE's programming in, in the recent years is, has taken a long-term view, so we have a 10-year or a 15-year program strategy that recognizes that social change, especially the kind of change that we are talking around, gendered social norms, is not going to happen in a de facto four-year project cycle. Uh, you know, we really have to think long-term. And so, the, so our program strategies are long-term, and then we look at how each project that we do slots into in addressing one of these um, three areas of work. All our projects have, uh, we have what's called a gender marker. CARE was one of the first organizations to develop one. So all our projects have to mark themselves on a, on a scale that goes from doing no harm, which is, you know, which we hope none of our projects do, uh, to the other end, which is really working at that transformational level, at that structural level of change. Thank you. Um, Claire, coming back to you, um, and I just wanted to share a quick story to contextualise my question to you. One of the last things I did um, in DPKO when I was working um, with Claire on gender issues was around um, the time of the 2015 resolution on women, peace and security. And we were developing a revised gender strategy and we were trying to place gender and peacekeeping in a structural way that meant it couldn't be shipped away, like it would, it would be safe. And we were working with the, security, the UN Security Council um, and I was asked to go to a meeting on a Friday night with the Under Secretary General for Peacekeeping and two ambassadors or permanent reps um, to the Security Council, you know, already very gender sensitive for a working mother to have a meeting at seven o'clock on a, on a Friday night, right? Um, but that wasn't the real reason I was bothered, it's because it was the night of the DPK Christmas party. <laughs> anyway, so I'm the, I'm the substantive person for um, DPK to support the Under Secretary General in this meeting. We walked into the meeting in the USG's office and I'm, I'm being, you know, these were ambassadors who were very supportive of women, peace and security. We walked into the room and it was my male USG, two male ambassadors and five women trailing in behind. Mm. And I looked at this and I thought, oh, this is interesting. And then I sat there for an hour and a half and listened to three men talk about what women need in peacekeeping. And they're talking, at, and they're talking about how women need breastfeed, breastfeeding facilities in peacekeeping missions, and they need this and that. And I'm a mother of a four-month-old, and I'm sitting there going, "What? What? What?" And I couldn't help myself. I thought, "Oh, career suicide." I said, "Gentlemen, I hope you won't mind me um, noticing that it's pretty ironic to have three old white men talking about what women need in peacekeeping and conflict scenarios while there are five women taking notes about it." <laughs> last thing I said in the meeting and off I went to the party but this is the kind of dynamic of being a woman working in women, mm -hmm. peace and security where quite often um, two issues get um, conflated which is numbers of women working in this space versus people committed to the women, peace and security agenda. So my question to you Claire is if you could share with us some of your more personal experience of, of what it's like to be a woman or a person working in the women, peace and security space in terms of the obstacles you face? Um, I have been asked to move away from the table because my male colleagues have come to the table and they're lower ranking. 
Um, I have been told to change my dress, the way I dress and the way I color my hair. I've been told not to wear red lipstick. I've been told many things um, in terms of, of, of how I approach m my life in the world. In one mission I worked, <clears throat> I, uh, every morning there would be a management meeting. And uh, I think trying to be kind or thoughtful, I'm not quite sure, but the head of the mission at the time, every morning, comment on what I wore in front of all my male colleagues around the table. Until I finally said, you have to stop that. Actually, I said to him first, I like your tie, you look very pretty. <laughs> and then I said, you need to stop doing that because it was just diminishing, right? And this is what happens, I think, and this is what happens with women generally. When women are getting into places of power, conversations of power, there's a cutting away of their legs. That's the, the sort of invisible breaking down. And women, peace, and security is actually a very threatening conversation for a lot of people because what we're looking at is changing the dynamics of power to say, let's restructure it so that women have access, and in that access, somebody has to give it up. And so the idea of having women, peace, and security present, or a gender vice present, or even a woman with a voice present, is so terrifying sometimes for men that there's a way that it becomes almost a personal attack. And so for me working in this, I, I from the very first day I think, I remember working in the mission being told by subject was not important, this wasn't essential, what you're doing isn't here, you don't smile enough, you smile too much, you're stupid, you're not stupid enough. I mean, it just keeps going, right? You can't win. But what you do is just realize it's not personal. It is personal, but not personal. Uh, it is political, but not political. But it is something you can't take seriously. And I think, for me, the more my trajectory and how I've done this is take all of this and understand, but understand and do it because on the ground, there aren't people who can do that. And that I, I said earlier today, I have feel I have a responsibility to use my voice to say something back because I can't. And in many cases where around the world where we have, that women don't have access to, to justice and to, and to political uh, power or they don't have even the freedom or the rights, then it is our responsibility to speak up when we can. But in terms of women, peace and security, it's not a side event, it's not a sideshow, it is central to the political discourse. And this is where I think it's frightening for a lot of people. And the, the more it becomes powerful and the more it becomes successful, the bigger the pushback. And we're seeing that now today, right? We're seeing it in populist movements, we're seeing it uh, how around the world, the resistance now to, to women's rights and to women's reproductive rights especially is now so, it's at a critical stage because I think we've had a lot of movement. And so for me, uh, it, it does become personal in that I, I do feel that we're at a, at a juncture right now in terms of women's rights uh, globally that we have to we have to take some action. Thanks, Ben. Um, Abhijog, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, the South Sudan context. Um, so uh, I, I was in South Sudan setting up the UN peacekeeping mission after the great successes of the election and the referendum around South Sudan's independence. And um, my reflections on that planning process from the in international intervention perspective were around the way the UN mission landed in Juba 
started working with the um, Southern Sudanese elite who spoke English and wore suits and started planning this whole mission around those very small conversations with a limited group of people. And we were working on um, an early warning system for how we would know there were challenges for civilians in South Sudan. And the gender advisor in that mission, who'd been there for some time, said to me as one of the planners, she said, look, Leanne, we've got to go and talk to some people. Like, let's go and I can get some people together. We can go and talk to community. So this gender advisor, off her own bat, went out and organised a meeting, which I managed to get the head of the planning mission, the ITAP mission too. We found ourselves in a, in a school with the, the planning team and about 200 women representing civil society organisations from around South Sudan. In that whole six-week planning process, this was the only civil society consultation that happened in setting up the UN mission. And these women, the planning team were just in shock. These women are saying, you want to talk about early warning? Let us tell you how our men prepare for war. Let us tell you the meals we prepare. Let us talk to you about how we help them get physically dressed for war. Let us tell you about why we want to share that information with you because we're leading families and communities and we worry about our kids going to school. And it was mind-blowing for the planning team. And it was a real lesson for me as a headquarters person going somewhere to think, wow, actually consulting community and actually consulting women as a valuable part of that community. So Apajak, I wanted to hear from you, um, if you can, about your knowledge of, of what it's like for yourself and your family members and people you know to be a woman in conflict and the kind of impact that conflict has on women and children in particular and what role women play from the prevention to the conflict to the peace building kind of spaces, if you can. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll be speaking predominantly from um, yeah, the, the older women in my community and yeah. the conversations we've been having about what their role was in in all of it. Um, a bit of background, my older brother was born in Sudan at the time, um, and then my parents had to flee to Ethiopia, but my other two siblings were born, and then they fled again to Kenya where myself and my sister were born. Um, and then we were fortunate enough to come to Australia. And in this conversation, um, I was kind of like, hey mom, like, what, what's a women's role in peace and security and in, in, in all this fleeing and, and war when most of the men are out actually fighting it. And she was like, well, to be honest, we are the mothers of the community. We're no longer the mothers of just our home, but of the whole community. As you flee, children don't have time to look back and be like, oh wait, where's my mom, where's my auntie? Um, they just run. And as soon as they run, um, it's more of an instinct. And when you guys are moving together, you, you grab them children under your wings. And even if you don't know who they are, or you don't know where their mothers are, um, when they're alone, you become their mother. And you shelter them, you feed them, you look after them, you nurture them, um, just like your own. And that became a norm. Um, and quite a few different women did that across the community um, during the fleeing season. And um, I have a, a brother, uh, a guy who went through this, who lost contact with his mother and his whole family for over 15 years. So my parents raised him as a sibling. Um, and he was fortunate enough to go to the US um, as a lost boy. And he would continually call, because um, that's where we got split up. He went to the US, we came to Australia, but he would always call, like, hey, mom, hey, dad, um, how are things going? And how are the kids? And um, we, I remember the day when we got a call from him, and he was in tears. And mom and dad are like, what's going on? And he's like, well, I've just been told they've located my mom. 
and um, it was huge, it was huge. And they're like, well, he's like, yeah, I'm gonna be going back in, in two weeks and I'll be meeting her and I'm gonna tell her all about you guys. And it was this huge, like, so emotional, but it's, it's just natural. Like mom said, it was just nurture. Um, and that's what most of the women did. Like you look after all the kids as if they're your own. And, um, and that was the women and that's how they supported the movement always providing, always doing the next step. Um, and even when it came to um, living in the refugee camp, working in the hospital um, voluntarily, and making sure they're always providing for the children that were at home, because the rations were always small enough for maybe a family of four, but not a family of 20. So they always had to go above and beyond to always be providing for everyone at home. Thank you. Um, I, know, I know you've been doing a lot of work on um, with civil society around the National Action Plan here. Um, and anyone who knows anything about the Women, Peace and Security agenda and how it got its feet knows how what a strong role civil society played in making that happen. Um, so I wondered if you could give us a sense of what you've been learning from having those consultations around the country about what Australian women understand or care about in the context of women, peace and security, what it means to them. Shelley, and I, I, I do want to acknowledge a few of my colleagues who are here as well from the Australian Civil Society Coalition on Women, Peace and Security who've been very, very central to running these conversations ever since Australia, well, before Australia got its national action plan, actually, mm -hmm. and then continuing through that um, period. I think, um, you know, just want to preface an understanding of WPS. I think, you know, we think it's a new agenda. It's actually over 100 years old. It dates back to World War One, when a group of suffragettes convened a meeting in the middle of the war to call for the end of the war and to actually make warfare an impossibility. So we've been talking about this as women, as diverse women, for a very long time. And I think the agenda is really a response to the systemic exclusion of women's voices from very, very vital discussions that we have around what is peace, you know, when and, well, if at all, we should be going to war. You know, what does sustainable uh, peace look like? What does peace building look like? And it's sort of the agenda has emerged as a response to the systemic exclusion. On the other hand, the agenda also, I think, really responds to why peace and security needs to account for the women's lived experiences, right? And, and sort of, um, and, and by taking into account, I think, women's lived experiences of peace and conflict, we can break this rather artificial divide we seem to have between what happens domestically and what happens internationally. Um, and I think the challenge that we have in Australia is just that. We see women, peace, and security as, or rather, when I say we, I think government <laughs> sees women, peace, and security as something that is out there for you know when we deploy our troops or when we deploy our federal police or through our aid program. But the conversations that we've had, uh, the Australian Civil Society Coalition has had with diverse women living in Australia um, is a very different look at peace and security. There's a, there's a very strong recognition that this is a domestic agenda. And you know, I would like to, sh I mean, we've got a few publications out there, but we've got two. Um, and I'll talk really much more about the one that's called Listening to Women's Voices. Um, because I think it really shows where the issues link internationally with you know, other women's lived experiences, and also where we stand in solidarity with women's experiences around peace and conflict. So one of the um, central questions that uh, we asked at the, at the 2017 uh, roundtables was, what does peace mean to you? 
what does peace and security mean to you? And it was fascinating to hear women articulate peace and security in, in two ways. One is they talked about, uh, well, both of them were framing it as freedom. One was it is freedom from uh, homelessness, it's freedom from statelessness, it's freedom from having to experience personal and, inter and intimate partner violence, it's freedom from sexual violence and sexual harassment and all forms of um, discrimination and stigma and coercion and threat. And at the, other, at the other end of the spectrum, it was actually freedom to, and this is freedom to access justice, uh, freedom to make choices and have the power to actually act on those choices, um, autonomy over uh, our body, uh, an ability to speak and be heard and have our voices respected in crucial dialogues, uh, not just around women's issues, but national issues as well. Um, the other concerns that women raised in, in, um, during the roundtables was how much, um, how little there was consultation around with civil society and, and especially women's civil society organizations around what constitutes national interest. Um, and that national interest in Australia was being really narrowly defined by a group of people and sort of focused very much on state security as opposed to the basic fundamental secure, human, what we call human security or what in our everyday lives makes us secure. Um, the other things that women raised with us was that there is a specific use that increasingly we are seeing a specific use of language and images that stereotype particular communities and women. Um, in, and this influences really how we perceive something as a threat or not. Um, and uh, this, you know, this recognition that we need to really challenge some of these ways of thinking. Um, so in, you know, in, in terms of what women were telling us, they were telling us that Australia you know, can make a contribution to women, peace and security, but that contribution has to happen at two levels. Uh, at the domestic level, it is you know really challenging those per, uh, you know challenging pervasive gender-based violence that happens in Australia, and sort of making the link between that violence and other types of violence like terrorism or violent extremism. And I think if we don't sort of recognise what they're trying to say, we are we are missing something really crucial. What what the women if we unpack what the women were trying to say, they were saying well we really need to challenge those gendered social norms that actually sanction violence as a way of addressing conflict and uh, dispute. And if you can challenge those gendered social norms, we can address peace at a much more sustainable level. The other thing they were telling us uh, very, very strongly was around unfinished work in Australia. It was a strong theme around what we are doing with reconciliation. And having to and, and recognizing that we still have a lot of work to do in this space, and a lot of that work need, we need to respect, and it needs to be led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And so there was a very, very strong endorsement for the um, Uluru's approach to constitutional reform. The other bits around domestic agenda that women told us was around was multiculturalism, and thinking about not just a policy of assimilation, but how can we live, work, and collaborate together, and how can we better uh, leverage the strengths of the diaspora community that we have um, in Australia, and I, and I think we don't do very well uh, with how we engage with our diaspora communities. And then at the, there was also a recognition that foreign policy is important, and that decisions that Australia makes domestically has larger international um, repercussions and consequences. So there were concerns, for example, that women raised around, well, what does it mean when the Australian government aspires to be a top 10 arms manufacturer? 
what does that mean for the work that Australia does internationally in, in, in peace building? And that if you want to actually, if you recognize that inequality lies at the heart of conflict and that results in power imbalances, resulting in drivers of conflict, then shouldn't we be doing more to actually address the root causes of conflict? Right? So, you know, should we not be doing more with our aid budget? You know, shouldn't we bring, shouldn't we aspire to as an organization, as a, as a country, uh, to looking at getting up to 0.7% uh, percent of GNI instead of investing in arms trade? Um, you know, so they were asking really fundamental questions. They were, there was a there was a strong focus that if we really want our foreign policy to work, the new white paper, uh, the, the white paper on our foreign policy, that the focus needs to be on long-term conflict prevention, um, and that our and and from there that our national plan needs to look at how we're going to prevent conflict from happening in the first place, rather than constantly be reactive when conflict happens. Um, and so there were discussions around you know sort of. Yes, when conflict happens, you have to immediately respond to de-escalate violence and to de-escalate the conflict. But we need to look structurally as well. You know, how is Australia going to use the Sustainable Development Goals more strategically in promoting peace? And then how are we going to engage systemically on those really global issues that we have to partner with? You know, arms trade, drugs trade, trafficking. Um, you know, these are issues that Australia alone cannot do something about, but needs to work in partnership with the global community. Mm -hmm. So, you know, really women have such a broad, uh, and I think really sophisticated understanding of peace and security that often doesn't make it into the mainstream narrative. Yeah, and this is one of the issues that I think Australian women and women working in, com women living in conflict zones do share in terms of um, representation and participation in decision-making structures around the issues affecting all of them. There was um, one, one really good example of peacekeeping, Claire, remember in DRC where um, sexual violence was such a pervasive issue and there was this great idea about um, giving communities mobile phones um, to re to, for an early warning system to report when something was happening. And I remember being in a consultation of uh, human rights officers in Geneva about this great strategy and somebody asked the question well who are they giving the phones to? Oh well the elders of the community. <laughs> so so women at risk don't have the hotline to safety it's the elder in that community who might perceive risk in a completely different way so rethinking all of these approaches is and just to build on that, I mean, the other, th the missing piece, and the missing piece was the do no harm piece, because what they realised was uh, to give the mobile phones when in communities that can't afford them or don't have them, you're putting women doubly at risk because they're going to be attacked for those mobile phones. Yeah. So the obvious, of sometimes the obvious response or the obvious solution is not the one that's best for women. And this was, uh, the, you know, again, this was, they had to be near um, a tower, and near the tower was, which was controlled by the non-state mm -hmm. actors who were creating the problems and doing the raping. And so the idea were putting women right into the middle of the harm that we were trying to, to protect them from, right? So these brilliant ideas sometimes created by men, not necessarily great after. She's about the consultation piece. Yeah. yeah. So look, it's half past seven. We've got half an hour left in this beautiful building. Let me throw open the floor to all of you to um, ask what you like or share your experiences or any feedback from what you've heard. And um, Holly will pass around the microphone for anyone who wants to use one.
Can I just can I just say one yeah. thing first? And, and it's just in response to, um, to, to, to the National Action Plan. And uh, we've just finished a best practice uh, mm -hmm. product uh, for NATO on the, the NATO allies and national action plans. And what has come out very concretely is the best approach to national action plans is internal, external focus. Yeah. And that the idea of you're projecting outwards, it's almost like a sort of a colonialist idea that you're telling, <laughs> you're telling others what to do and yeah. yet you don't look inside yeah. at yourself. And, and in Canada, it, it's the same conversation to have. But what, I, what I'm also really in, interested in is, is the idea that women, peace and security, and of course coming from NATO, um, the idea of where you put money in your national action plan and what the focus is. I know there's a lot of assumptions that NATO, the connection to NATO and, and the money that would be spent on defense, so obviously we want 2% of, of GDP, but the connection for me is that we go to make safe spaces so women can then access rights, mm -hmm. and which means you need a military to do such. And the idea that I understand you have to have money in development, but you cannot rid the, the world of military, unfortunately, because in something like Afghanistan, you have to make safe the environment for women's rights to, to be expanded or to even starve. And this is part of where I think there is a good connection with women's civil society to input into how NATO can construct itself in the way of women, peace, and security. But it also means there has to be money spent on defense. Yes, I mean, but I think it's all, I, I don't disagree with you, I come from a defense family, so, um, you know, I, uh, I've had these really challenging conversations with my father and my grandfather around, what's the role of military in peace? Do they have a role in peace at all? Um, and I worked at the Civil Center, the Australian Civil Military Center, so, you know, and some of my colleagues from there are here as well. Um, and we've had these conversations. I don't disagree with the fact that we may need a military, but I think it's also a question, it's not an either-or question, but I think it's also a question of proportionality. Mm -hmm. And I think it is problematic when global military expenditure is around um, $7.3 trillion and the expenditure on, on development is you know, in, in, in the doldrums, literally. I think it is a question of, um, and it, it does give us an indication of where our priorities um, lie. And if you want to talk about the National Action Plan, well, our National Action Plan is not resourced. Mm -hmm. There is no budget attached mm -hmm. to our National Action Plan. And the idea is that every department's budgets will spend something on WPS, and that we will somehow, somehow we'll, we'll spend something, and then we'll somehow track it. And you know, I think as civil society organisations, we've been we've been very challenged about that. And, and the other thing, if we want civil society to participate, you need to resource civil society's participation, and that is completely missing from most national action plans, where there is a there is a focus where we can bring. That those diverse women's voices to inform what you know how you might do things more effectively, and I think you know that's where I think. Um, so you're absolutely right. You know you've got, you've have much greater integrity now because you have resourcing attached to it, and we're still in that um, to use a military jargon a battle for resources. But most action plans are resourced. Yeah, and, and that's that the is huge where problem. we have to also question the efficacy of action plans. Because if yes. we're not going to resource them, why do we have them? And they're just one tool. And they've unfortunately become sort of the central focus of most efforts as government has become the National Action Plan. But it is not the, it doesn't have just one yeah. little thing that can help, you know. It's also not the momentum. excuse for not doing anything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. I think we should um, get some other voices into the conversation. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not finished. <laughs> Who would like to add to? Yes, please. Hold on. Oh, that one works. 
Um, first of all, thank you all very much. It's been a very interesting uh, chat so far. Um, my question is about women in mediation processes. I know that it's obviously it's part of UN Resolution 1325 that women have full participation in um, in um, these processes, and it's incredibly important. And also that statistically, um, peace processes are more successful when women have been involved in the mediation. My question is, when, even when women are brought to the table, so often they're still left out of the actual resolution that was en that was entered. In an example for, um, I think in the Mali peace process, the women of Mali lobbied for eight more women in addition to the three that were already included to be brought to the table to be involved in the peace process. But then what resulted was overwhelmingly sort of left out entirely what the women had actually requested. So in these peace processes, in mediation processes, besides actually bringing women to the table, what can organizations like NATO, like CARE do, to ensure that women's voices aren't just brought to the table, but actually heard, recorded, and included in the resolutions that come from them? Well, NATO doesn't do that. So, so that's an easy answer. Uh, <laughs> not, not our job. Um, we don't work necessarily, per se, on, 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 on peace processes of bringing women's voices to that. Again, but we do try to create the conditions where you would be able to have a peace process or a negotiation. Um, but I'm going to be controversial here, and I'm going to question the statistic of the 35% of peace, because women, if, if peace processes include women, they're, longer, they're more likely to last 35% or whatever, but most women aren't in the peace process negotiation, so where do we get the statistic from? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm being controversial here, by the way. Um, but the idea of, of having women at the table this is one of this is one of my personal beefs. Is it's about meaningful participation, right? We cannot just drop women at the table and say we've done the business. But this is also where I challenge civil society, because civil society have to be more strategic in what they're asking for as well. Because you can't just sit at a table and start ranting about something or, or questioning something without having a solution or some strategic response. And I think it's a double duty from both of us. One for us to open the spaces as international community, but the other for civil society and women's, women's groups to, to understand how to manipulate the situation to get the best possible result. And so I think we both need to grow on both sides to understand uh, where that central point or entry point is. So I think we have a lot of challenges in peace processes, not just simply getting on the table, but getting some action that comes from us by changing our uh, change management in a way. Can I, can I just tack on to that before you go? It sort of goes back to what you were saying about Kayaide. It, it isn't just the job of the women at the table to make sure women's yeah. issues are taken up. So there's got to be a development of trust um, that, that men and women can pursue the agenda. It doesn't have to be the youngest woman in the whole delegation who's responsible for making sure that those things get into the agreement. And, and we've got a long way to go on that front. But that's one of the things that you were so good at in the peacekeeping context. A lot of people, including a lot of senior male officials, they, 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 they don't have anything against the Women, Peace and Security agenda, but they might not understand what it means in terms of translating it into practice. So finding a way to place the importance of those issues about gender parity or about pursuing uh, those goals of the women, peace and security agenda in a way that makes sense to somebody who's got a whole different set of KPIs they have to fulfill. It's really the, the, the pointy end of the stick yeah. in, in having impact. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, we we had to deal with this a bit in Geneva when um, the Youth Advisory Committee said, "Hey, we want to jump on board with um, gender equality, but what do we do? Mm -hmm. And what does that look like?" Um, and in mind, they're 50-50. There's 50% um, females, 50% males in this group. So we went on to do um, workshops with them and just kind of nutting down what does it actually mean? What does it look like? Um, and that was super effective for them and really practical um, in regards to, okay, uh, everyone has a mother or a sister, an auntie, a female in their family. And um, if something happens to that female, how does it affect you? And and then nutting that down really brought practicality and really brought really great substance to um, the recommendations that they were bringing up to the High Commissioner um, in the following days. Um, and that really did bring a great light to the conversations that were had um, in the in the days leading up to that. Interesting. Yeah. Really bringing it home. Yeah. Um, I think two things. One is the statistics. I know you wanted to be controversial, <laughs> but it is that the statistic is that when women are present and engaged in um, peace processes, then the peace process lasts 35 years longer or whatever. There's a 35% probability that peace lasts 15 years or more. So it's on those very few instances that women have actually been at the table. But to go to the question around mediation, I think, um, and this, this is not just a question around mediation, this is a challenge for what women's meaningful participation means. But in, 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 in mediation and peace processes, lots of those discussions are not made, lots of those decisions are not made in that room. Mm -hmm. Many of those decisions are actually made outside that room. Mm -hmm. And it depends on women having those networks and, and being able to use those networks to influence the decisions. Um, and this is my pet beef with women's leadership programs. You know, for some reason, we think women don't have a leadership uh, capacity, and we're constantly training them to be leaders. But actually, what we need to be doing is opening up those networking spaces where you can actually demonstrate leadership. Um, and that is what is missing. And that is what women don't have access to because we have not been historically part, been part of this level of decision-making. And I think the other thing to recognize is that sometimes we privilege those formal peace processes at the cost of not looking at all the work that women do informally that actually feeds into formal peace building processes. And that you actually need to work with women and women-led organizations. And when I say women, I'm referring to diverse women organizations, so the SOGESC um, uh, comes into that as well. That we need to be working with them both at that informal level to feed into some of these more formal uh, peace processes. And we need to restructure how those agreements are written. Um, you know, it's not just about hearing women's voice, but as you pointed out, recording those voices. Um, and I just, I, I, you know, I, I just, I guess I wanted to kind of add to that discussion as well. There's also some interesting research that there, it's not, I don't think it's quite done yet, but that shows that actually who the women are that are participating yeah. matters. So it's all very well for like an international white woman to fly in to participate in that process, um, but actually the impact is made when local women are participating in their own peace processes. Yeah. And the, I think there's a real value in that question of kind of second track diplomacy and the less formal approaches um, to, to peace, I think are really um, a really important space. Um, and again, it's that, because having just, just having a woman 
in a peace process doesn't necessarily mean that those gendered issues are going to be raised. Uh, um, there's a sort of there's some evidence around needing a um, critical mass of women before they start to feel like they're confident enough to raise some of those specific issues. But also, in theory, like in most of these contexts, it's not going to happen. But it doesn't need to be women who are raising those those um, those issues. It's there's yeah, there are ways to get those issues on the table that don't necessarily come through from women themselves. And that goes to the payoffs and the relevance and the incentives, right? I think yeah. Claire, um, I saw something you'd written about you know uh, where women are empowered in a society. There's a clear correlation between the stability of that mm -hmm. society yeah. and where where there are clear where there's clear evidence of um, women being abused, it points to a whole lot of other things going wrong mm -hmm. in a society. So showing world leaders, for example, the, the payoffs of gender yeah. equality mm -hmm. empowerment is finding the way to make them think, oh, that, there's a payoff for me in there. Yeah, and, and that is going back to the rhetoric. I mean, this is where I think we have to get better at, at that selling. And, and, and I, I approach it like it's a marketing tool, right? Um, what can I do for you? What is it going to do? And if we say that women who are at a, at a piece uh, at, at a table in any table, and that in the end you're going to have because we know it's a barometer, right? But that we can test. And if we know that there's going to be more violence, either it could be gang violence, it could be any kind of violence, and that means it's going to cost you in terms of fiscally going to cost you in terms of the police deployment or, or or even the deployment of military. It's going to cost you in terms of of law and order and corruption. Um, then you can break it down and say, okay, this is why it should make sense to you. But I think we're not very good at doing that. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we say it should be because it's a right. Um, and yes, that, that should be the conversation, but it's not good enough. And we still have to say it, it should be this because it makes sense both politically or economically, it makes sense socially. And so this is when I say, and it's with love of civil society, I say it, Let's help work together to make that rhetoric stronger so that women have the political tools to force the agenda on the table. And so when they are there, they're not just saying, well, I should be there because I'm a woman. And, and this is where I think we fail in, the, in this conversation. Uh, let me check. Um, here and then. Yes, you. Um, well, I'm just giving this thing to the microphone because we've got the recording down the front. Uh, my question was in relation to uh, inclusivity and diversity in, within the space. Um, I wonder if um, CARE or NATO have any programs or policies in place to ensure that women from um, different backgrounds, in particular ethnic minority backgrounds, are included within um, peace, women, peace and security. Uh, given the example that you gave of the woman who was, who was supported through the scholarship in Afghanistan, went to the US and is now back in Afghanistan working and um, the more women who, uh, who are supported within this space, it has, I believe that it has its um, flow on effect and it encourages other wo women in the community or their parents to encourage their own daughters to take that, that step. Um, from CARE's perspective, um, we, all our programming takes what we call an intersectional approach. Um, and by that we mean that we recognize that gender is just one identity that then intersects with all different identities around race, around age, around ethnicity, um, around geographies, you know, whether you're based rurally or remotely, um, around disability and ability, that all these different identities actually intersect 
in our experiences of uh, disadvantage and marginalization or privilege. Um, and so all our programming necessarily takes an intersectional approach. So uh, in our programming, we are always working with the most disadvantaged groups of women um, and taking into account these, these multiple dimensions around which uh, we work. So in, in, in Vietnam, we work with ethnic minority women, and similarly in Laos and in Cambodia, um, almost all our projects will have that component that looks at gender much more in an intersectional way rather than um, you know, treating women as a homogenous um, group. Uh, with NATO, we, we, are, we have a new, or developing a new diversity policy, realizing um, we may all look the same. Um, so we're now looking at diversity. But for me, it's interesting because we seem to go to the, 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 the most common areas of diversity. So it should be gender, it should be age, it should be geogra geography. <laughs> it's jet lag. Geography. Um, but for me, it's interesting because you can come from the same country and be from the same religion and be from the same age, but it's about privileged access that makes it diverse. So I come from, for example, I've born in the north of England to a working class family. Somebody who's the same age and from the same country, but grew up in a more privileged environment, will think very differently about the world. And I think this is where we need to reach out in terms of diversity, to get the difference of thinking. And it's not always obvious by what you look like, uh, it's often by how you approach life. And so we're now building this into our new diversity policy, which is then to reach out and, and recruit uh, those who are different from, from the norm in some cases. But what I'm very uh, conscious of is that we don't lose the gender balance to the geographic. Mm -hmm. And this has happened in the UN many times, where we're looking for one thing and therefore something else loses out. It can't be, um, it, it, it can't be a win-win situation. It has to be something that's like diverse in the way so, we approach um, it. So we're very conscious of it, and our Deputy Secretary General is ahead of our task force. Um, and so we're taking it really seriously. And understanding that when we go to community, when we go to mission, we have to look, uh, we have to look like we represent the nation and the people who make up our nations. And they're not all middle class older men. So we have to then You made an interesting point earlier about the most successful in your best practice national action plans, mm -hmm. about the most successful ones being inward and outward looking. I know there are a few military folk in, in the room, so people might have some views, but I think in Australia we have a, a great elephant in the room that is um, preventing us from moving as fast as we should go, and that's the a big cultural review which was done um, called Pathway to Change. And where I, I feel like in Australia we're so ashamed of that and um, we can't link women's participation internally to the women, peace and security agenda because we have this pathway to change experience that um, in the defence force that we're trying to recover from. You want to say a bit more about that? Because yeah. Um, yeah. And so there are some people in the room who are more expert in me than this. Uh, but I think it was 2012. Um, yeah. Uh, in 2012, um, in a response to some awful um, sexual abuse um, allegations uh, in Defence Force and most particularly in our training areas. Um, resulting from that incident, uh, a big cultural review was undertaken. I, th I think in fact there was a series of three cultural reviews. Yeah, um, and they, they led to um, 
a, a number of findings and and uh, Elizabeth Broderick our uh, sex did a, a report um, which is called Pathway to Change and she made some very harsh recommendations she made some harsh findings and harsh recommendations and she really took defence to task um, about women's participation and treatment of women in defence um, and it's I find it frustrating that we can't link women's participation in defence in our own forces to the women, peace and security environment. And I feel like it's this um, review that has resulted in that experience and, and it has hobbled us in moving forward. Because, you know, in Canada we had something very similar. I mean, there was similar, there was the allegations of sexual abuse in, in, in defence. And I think this is where, well, for me it has to be linked to the inward outward. Because, but also, everywhere in the world there will be issues of sexual exploitation abuse, there'll be sexual abuse, there'll be harassment, there'll be bullying. And within a military structure or civilian structure, it's no different. But the power of women, peace and security is that it's a bold agenda. And it's a bold agenda that should be the place where you can open up whatever the difficulties are and then say, okay, this happened, we learn from it. And I think this is similar to General Morrison made this very clear about owning that, that, that whatever was uncovered. What I have a difficulty with with the National Action Plan is part of National Action Plans is increasing numbers of women in defence. If you're going to go out and say to another nation, we're going to support you and you need to increase the women in anything, and yet you can't do it and look internally, there's no credibility in the support you give to other nations in terms of National Action Plans. And that, and it's, this is not for Australia, this is anywhere, this is just generically. How does that, how does anybody take you seriously? If you can't look at yourself, it's like saying, I, I'm going to give advice on how to paint somebody else's house, but mine is falling down. You have to get your house in order. And I think this is really important as part of national action plans for any, any nation, is that you look at how you would increase or, or, or deal with whatever the issues on women, peace and security are, not enough women, more women, less women, whatever. And then you have the grounding to be able to look outward. And, and I think it's a, this for me is my personal opinion, but this for me is very important in terms of National Action Plan creation. Can I add to that, Claire, not just, on, um, not just from the military perspective in terms of having women represented, but when we had the high level independent panel on peace operations in New York and, and we had the panel members consulting us. There, I'll never forget there was a young Syrian woman who was part of that um, high-level independent panel. And she just looked at us as the UN in the room and she said, you guys insist on putting me in this mediation. And what happens when I show up to the mediation? The international community shows up with a raft of men, not a woman in sight. What, what kind of example yeah. is this to set to us about how it works in you know, stable, yeah. developed countries when yeah. you tokenistically put us at the front but there's no one in your, in your yeah. delegation? Can I just add to that? I think one of the learnings for organisations like CARE and civil society has been that unless organisationally you don't live and breathe gender equality in everything that you do programmatically, your gender equality work doesn't, doesn't happen. Yeah. That you have to. But from what I've heard from um, my military colleagues is that um, some of it was, uh, was, 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 was taking a leaf out of Claire's book, which is trying to be strategic and not lose the ability to, to embed a more gendered approach into deployments, 
because there was a there was a perception that there is going to be a backlash against what we see because you know fundamentally we are tinkering at the edges honestly with pathways to change you are not fundamentally within the military challenging gendered norms around masculinity and dominant masculinity we're you know trying to, to, to stay away from that because that's extremely hard to do and extremely long term to do so in some sense it was you know trying to be uh, pragmatic but if you ask civil society organizations they will tell you from years of experience that unless and, and care does this on you know we organizationally still have conversations around where our policies our internal organizational policies are not there yet um, and so how then can we expect our, the communities with whom we work to suddenly transform themselves um, and it's taken us years to do, and we want to do that in like four years when we work in Kashmir. Sorry, I just want to build yeah. on what Leanne said, because this is how the UN peacekeeping got gender advisors, was because being embarrassed by civil society in Kosovo. And in 1999, when Kofi Annan went to visit the mission Kosovo, and part of the idea was telling communities how to rebuild, or how do you rebuild post-war, post and there wasn't any women in the mission. There was not one woman who was working there. And civil society said, quite rightly, how dare you? How dare you tell us what to do about democracy and rule of law and restoring ourselves, and yet you haven't got any diversity within your ranks? And there was a panic. There was a mass panic. So they went and picked the first woman they could find to make her the gender advisor. And, and that was the beginning of, of getting gender into peacekeeping. And then, of course, it became more of a, 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 a systematic and structured now. But there was, there was essentially that credibility issue. You, you can't tell us if you don't do. And, and I think this goes to everything on one piece of security. It really has to be embedded within your own culture, right? your own background, for you to be able to speak with, with authenticity to anybody else. I'm just going to go yeah. here. Yes, I know. Sorry, um, someone was waiting over here for a while before, and then I'll come over here. Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks, everyone. My question goes to Claire, and it was I think you mentioned before that your um, NATO is planning to release a report on sexual exploitation and abuse, and I'm just wondering uh, where that, what the approach is to compiling that report, where the data is coming from. Um, well, I'd love to be able to have a report, but we don't have a policy yet. Ah, so we're developing a very first policy um, on, and, and as you'll probably know, our policy is developed by nations. So the nations are the ones who agree on the policy. So right now we're in the process of drafting and negotiating uh, uh, what I hope will be uh, a, a robust policy uh, highlighting our zero tolerance approach. The Secretary General already talks about we will have a zero tolerance approach. So we're building actually on the UN, the UN has done a lot of work on this, trying to replicate in a way what the UN has done so there's clarity. Because one of the biggest problems with sexual exploitation abuse is that if you, if you go or you're deployed as a peacekeeper for the UN and then you rehat and you move into a NATO mission and you have different standards and different understanding, you don't know what you're doing, and it's not fair to the military, but it's not also not fair to the community. Or so, an EU mission as well. Yeah, and the, yeah. So the idea is to make the language, or at least the definitions, all the same, so that we can have clarity and of standards. So the policy will be developed by June, and then after that, we'll develop uh, a training. The training again, building on the UN, and then a handbook for implementation. So it's a long process uh, before we get to anything, but the policy's first. 
ladies, thank you very much for your um, informative uh, discussion. Um, I'm Group Captain Wendy Porter, a former uh, director of the Broderick Review within Defence. I'd just like to clarify a few points. Um, Pathway to Change was not the Broderick Review. Pathway to Change came out of a number of reviews. One of them was the treatment of women in the ADF and a number of other significant reviews that were done. Um, so I, I, I don't know where you're getting the fact that you think Pathway to Change was um, something abhorrent, but it was a good start for us to to start a change management function within the ADF. Um, the Broderick Review um, had a number of um, points that we had to look at, and in my position, I um, instigated and made sure that a number of matters were looked at in regards to retention and recruitment of women. And we've made large progress in that um, from 2013 when I was doing that job to now. And those um, statistics we received today at the uh, Women, Peace and Security meeting and today were, were fantastic to see that we are deploying the same amount of number of people, of women that we have within the ADF and we deploy that same statistic overseas is fantastic. Um, as if with any change management, it takes time. Yes. I was seconded to the UN, to DPKO in 2012, and I was part of the things that you're talking about. Change takes time. Um, and I think, and I'm part of the ADF, so you know, I'm biased, <laughs> I think we've come a long way. We heard some fantastic stories today about how gender advisors are working within our ADF missions. Um, success stories, um, we heard some not success stories, but we're out there, we're, we're talking about it, we're telling our stories, and I think that's fantastic. Um, Pathway to Change is still in defence, perhaps not at the top of our um, priorities at the moment, but uh, just the point that I wanted to clarify is that Pathway to Change is not the project. Thank you for clarifying that and thank you too for all of your efforts in this regard. I know it's been a long, hard fight for the people working at the coalface on it. And you know, really important to say as well that in my non-national hat working for the UN, Australia's role in um, supporting UN initiatives on protection of civilians writ large, but also specifically in the women, peace and security space, were very constructive and very forward-looking. And I just want to, uh, and I mentioned this today and, and I, I mentioned it this morning as well, um, that the, the work that uh, the, the Australian forces have done in terms of best practices is some of the ones that we draw on in NATO um, and, and have advanced incredibly. Uh, and so when we look at and the defence report that came out yesterday, actually use some of, are going to use some of those good practices because this is actually one of the first reports I've ever seen that comprehensively gathers the good practices that you're doing and really tries to analyse them. And so for NATO, Australia, deployment to Afghanistan and, and also in Kosovo is a great partner and I think has to be commended for the work and for the advancement that's made. And I do think it's, um, and I think we need to separate the two things as well, right? The advancements made, because all, always things can be better, but I think it is absolutely, uh, you, you do have a credible force. And this is what I said uh, last evening when the, 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 the Swedish ambassador that what makes it work is that on the ground you have the trust and respect of community. 
and you do, in and where you deploy in Afghanistan, most of the good practices did come actually from the Australian military. So um, I think we need to we need to hold that up to account. Um, there's always advancements made, absolutely, in any military, in any civilian, in any certain civil military uh, engagement. But I, I, I can't say enough about what respect I do have for the, for the Australian military. Can I just say, taking up that point, thank you very much about the report. Um, there was a report that was released, uh, published and released yesterday. Um, and it's a report, so Deb Warren's the former Australian Army, and I've been a general advisor for two years in a, um, as a practitioner. So the report that was, that was released yesterday is a, a detailed compilation of what the ADF has done over the past six years in response to the 17 out of the 24 tasks that the ADF was responsible for in our 2012-2018 National Action Plan. So we report every two years to government with a very detailed report in terms of what each of the civil services, what defence collectively are doing, what the Australian Civil Military Centre have been doing in that space. When it gets up to government level, um, the, the toppings are kind of picked and published in the biennial reports. So Defence then decided to put together a detailed report of everything we have done in this space in the last six years. And it is reported and it's aligned with what we call our six lines of effort. So we're looking at things such as training, international engagement. Um, so I commend that report to you. Um, it's available on the, I think the ADF website, but um, just Google ADF um, report and it's, it's there. So it's, it's a really good report to read. And I think I, I can I thank you for your comments about ADF being best practice, but we are still also learning. Don't get me right. We we are have not practiced enough. It's a long term process. Lots of little ink spots of excellence, and together, hopefully, those ink spots will grow, um, and in time, will become um, significant. Mm -hmm. But but I think this is an important lesson because, again, on women, peace, and security, we quite often throw rocks and we don't recognize when, when effort has been made. And I think it's really important to understand and to reflect on the efforts that's made. Everywhere in the world, to be quite honest, we will have sexual exploitation abuse. We will have issues of, of whatever uh, harassment or whatever in any, in any engagement in the world. We will have women be marginalized. We will, I mean, this is just the practicality of life. But I think we have to do better reflecting when efforts are being made, respect that, recognize it and say, but you can do more. Mm -hmm. and, and quite often we say, you haven't done enough, you haven't done enough. And this is where we have to get better at being strategic with women, peace and security. Reflect on what's working, sharpen that and advance it. Don't keep pulling it down. And, and, and we have a lot of good practice from all of the nations. Uh, well, not all, a lot of the nations. <laughs> um, some not so much. Um, uh, but let's let's use that. Let's use it as a, a jumping off point, and, and then promote this, and see how better we can go. Challenge each other to say, let's be better. You you, you know you can win this race. Um, this is a this is a lesson for me, and this is a lesson we take in NATO. And it's a, it's not just a responsibility of the military in any country. And I think yeah. that um, more integration of whole of government approaches to how we see these issues playing out is really important for military and civilians and police. Right? Yeah. And don't forget civil society. 
Very important. Very important. Part of that agenda, as much as government is part of that agenda, we are a very vital piece. We're often on the ground well before any intervention has, has been planned or happened, and we're often responding, and we're often first responders. Um, and so we have a lot of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to draw on that and to partner with civil society rather than treat us in a rather instrumental manner as, you know, oh yeah, we'll consult you. Well, yes, we do want to be consulted, but we want to be partnered with because we bring a lot of that experience and knowledge. Absolutely, and I'm going to take the opportunity to mention that, you know, for, for us in NATO, and for me personally, but for NATO as well and for the, the SecGen, um, civil society is so critical that we have a civil society advisory panel. Yes. And this has been uh, recently reviewed by our nations as a good practice. And it's actually been recommended the UN does something similar. And, and civil society, both critical and appreciative, as they should be, and Ludmilla's here, she's on our civil society advisory yeah. panel, um, hold us to account, right? And sometimes it's not comfortable. No. Sometimes we don't like it. A lot of time we don't like it. But it's important, and it's important to put in the center of the work we do, because ultimately this agenda is for the women, right? It is for those women in conflict. And if we can't hear the critical, uh, how can we then hear the positive? We have, to, we have to be measured in the way we do and bring both of these in. So we really do appreciate the voices of civil society. Um, and, and that is really important to the work we do because it's not a natural fit for NATO, right? So it is even more important. Yeah, and I think that's what, for us in civil society, I think one of the biggest concerns we're seeing is a, is a squeezing of civil society's independent voice, uh, an attempt to really curtail the spaces that have previously been open to us to have our conversations. And so, you know, I do think it's important for governments to protect that space and to create that robust space. Um, and having things like the advisory panel and, um, is, is, is one way in which you open up some of those spaces that might be closed. Listen, we're a bit over time, but I, I'll take one last question and then we should probably wrap up. Just be nice, you want And just hopefully this will tie together a few of the things that um, Claire and Anu were saying. And um, we're talking about needing to improve the rhetoric and selling women peace and security to people who don't necessarily find it as a natural fit. And then the civil society perspective of looking and linking the domestic and the international. We've talked a lot tonight about women, peace and security when things have already gone wrong and introducing women a gender perspective and post-conflict, during-conflict mediation. Is there any work going on at the NATO level or internationally or is the civil society having much traction looking at women's advancement agenda as a preventative security measure and looking at long-term peace as opposed to establishing short-term peace post-conflict? Yeah. A very good question and one of the critical parts of the Women, Peace and Security agenda, which I think is overlooked in many cases, right? We put a lot on the protection and, uh, and, 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 and participation. And I said this earlier today, I, I also worry about the concentration on parity versus the participation piece. And participation meaning political participation. So we are looking in NATO at early warning indicators. We have a partnership in terms of a relationship with the EU, looking at what does early warning mean for women uh, in the areas where we are deployed, and how can we detect uh, and mitigate any of the threats against women uh, before they happen. And this comes for, for example, identifying rhetoric about women, about the rights, the destruction of women's rights, civil and political rights. And we're also looking at um, using those early warning indicators also to 
prevent violent extremism as, as well. So it's a whole range of early warning. So we're looking at the, the, the areas of prevention in terms of early warning analysis. Now, the, NATO doesn't do the work ourselves. Uh, it is our nations who would do it. But what we want to do is try to pr provide them with the tools so they would be able to use the work in terms of their own prevention. Um, because unlike the UN, we don't have a, a peacekeeping force. Their nations deploy on their own as well. But what we want to do is help our nations identify these, these risk areas and get better at doing the preventative work. Um, from, a, from a Care Australia perspective, and I think uh, lots of CSOs will, will agree with this, that we want to see a much greater uh, focus on primary prevention. So, you know, preventing conflicts, you know, as I said, preventing conflicts from happening in the first place. Um, and so a lot of, I think, civil society organizations and NGOs work on looking at, you know, building resilience within communities, looking at improving government structures, looking at and engaging in that space and making sure that women, diverse women, are part of that conversation on what strengthens rule of law, what strengthens governance. Um, CARE particularly has uh, very recently um, launched a very exciting tool that looks at doing uh, political economy analysis but from a gendered lens. So if you look at most political economy analysis, they're sort of completely silent on anything to do with gender. And we feel that unless we are able to have a robust analysis of the communities in which we work, it's really going to be impossible to think about how those communities can be more resilient. So primary prevention is core to what uh, most civil society civil society does. And if you make that link to the sustainable development goals, the whole purpose of the sustainable development goals and a gendered approach, so not just goal five, but across all the 17 goals, if we take a gendered approach, then we are going to be addressing those very basic structural problems that sort of result in state fragility. Um, and so that is really where um, civil society's focus and NGOs focus lies. And it's cheaper to prevent than to deploy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another incentive. Yeah, exactly. That one has a monetary value attached to exactly. it, isn't there? Wasn't there a World Bank study that showed, for, I think, you say $16 down the yeah. line for every $1 invested in primary prevention. Yeah. yeah. So, look, thank you to you wonderful women on this panel. It's been wonderful to have this conversation with you, and I'm sure everyone would agree. So, please join me. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Whitlam Institute podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter as we continue Goff's work and in the great man's words, maintain your enthusiasm.